Amen, amen. Man, good morning. It's good to be with you this morning to worship together again. Hey, if you're new here, if it's your first time worshiping with us, we're pumped that you're here. Um, you can grab it. It's okay. Uh, we had a peppermint rolling across the floor. Uh, so just deal with the awkwardness. Go and grab it. There we go. Um, so th- if it's your first time worshiping with us, we're pumped that you're here. We just have a gift that we'd love to give you today. And all that we ask is you take the card from the bag of seat in front of you, fill it out. Drop it by Next Steps um, on your way out today, which are the two uh, kiosks there in the lobby, and they'll hook you up with a free Lindsay Lane East t-shirt and some info about our church, and that's just our way of saying thank you uh, for being here. It's pretty, it's easy enough. Um, so uh, before I even dive in the message, I wanted to, uh, to, to thank you guys um, for giving faithfully that allowed us uh, to provide lunch for 82 of the staff and faculty, well, the entire staff and faculty, but it was 82 of them, um, at Harvest Elementary this past Friday. And so it was a really, really fun time. Yeah, it was really cool. Um, so, yeah, so we got to uh, we got to go, and, and it was April Fool's Day. We strategically chose April Fool's Day <clears throat> because um, we're strange here at East, and we like to do fun things. And so uh, we got to deliver Happy Meal boxes to all the teachers. They were stuffed with Chick-fil-A box lunch. So we literally bought 85 boxes of Chick-fil-A, came here to the church, took everything out of the boxes, put it in Happy Meal boxes, and then delivered that to the teachers. Um, a lot of people did really good with it. A lot of the people that were delivering, a lot of our your church people um, were a lot better at lying and just looking at disappointment and just not worrying about it. Like, I couldn't do it. The first lady I dropped it off to, you could see in her eyes, like, Happy Meal. This is what, like, I didn't bring lunch today because y'all were providing lunch and you're bringing a happy, I could see it in her eyes. So I was like, April Fool's, open it, please open it, you know. Um, but we had a great time, uh, principal bought into it and, uh, and we had a good time just spreading some cheer um, on, uh, at Harvest Elementary. And again, uh, we were able to do that. We were able to buy them Chick-fil-A and not just like the cheapest thing we could. Like we were able to buy them a good lunch um, because of the faithfulness of you guys to continue to give uh, for all of us. And so uh, that was really, really cool on on Friday. And just want you to remind you that Easter is just around the corner. Uh, We're having our Easter service. If you've been under a rock or haven't been here the last few weeks, uh, our Easter service is going to be at Creekside Elementary this year. And so um, we, for years, we've tried to do multiple services. Last year, we tried to do three services on Easter and it just, it taxed us so much. And we realized it divides our people even more than two services do. And so we prayed about it, and we're trying to figure out ways we could do outreach, ways we could get more people to come to Easter, and God opened the door for us to be able to go to Creekside. So we're going to be in the gym at Creekside Elementary on April 17th for one service at 10 o'clock um, on April 17th. This afternoon, we're going to invite about 240 homes to join us uh, for Easter. So if you want to come and, and just go visit people, uh, and invite them to our Easter service. We've got door hangers um, that you're going to be, you're going to knock on the door. Uh, we've got a script and everything that you can, oh, I don't want you to read it, but you can memorize it before you leave the car and just hand them the thing, say the script if you want, and then walk off um, awkwardly. And it's okay. Um, but we invite you to come back at 2.30. If you'd like to help us with that, it's going to take more. Kenny will talk some more about the end. Um, but we're going to walk through a training at the beginning and give you all the all the stuff that you need uh, to be a part of that. So please come back at 2.30 today to help us. But in preparation for Easter, I want to spend the two weeks leading up to Easter talking about Jesus, which I feel is pretty safe, right? I feel like talking about Jesus 
uh, in my sermons is probably pretty good. I have a buddy that I coach with. Uh, we coach my daughter's team, um, uh, softball team together. And he always asks, his favorite thing is, what you preaching on Sunday? He loves hearing about what I'm preaching on Sunday. And I sometimes just mess with him. I say Jesus, but like this will be an honest answer this time. I'm preaching on Jesus. Um, but there's a big part of the significance of Jesus that we miss because we're living in 2022 in America. Um, there's a large part of the significance of Jesus that we miss. Today, our culture thinks of Jesus as a plain vanilla guy who would have been no fun to hang out with, super boring, super serious, right? And that view of Jesus infiltrates our culture and at times can infiltrate our minds as we read the gospel accounts of Jesus' life in the first four books of the Bible. However, what we what we know when we read the Bible properly is that Jesus was not plain vanilla. He was whatever the opposite of plain vanilla is, the most radical flavor you can think of, which would be pistachio. <laughs> I was not expecting pistachio. Um, I don't know. That's that's gross. I don't know if that's one I like either. Um, I don't know what it would be, but whatever the most radical ice cream flavor is, the opposite craziest thing, that's what Jesus was. Jesus was a radical in his day. He shook the foundations of the religious and political systems to the point that both of them wanted him gone just to end his message. Church, listen, Jesus was a radical. And so much of Jesus' radicalness is wrapped up in the word that we often throw throw around, and it's a term that I use for Jesus without quite often thinking of its heaviness. And no, it's not his last name. It's a title, Christ. And so today we're going to talk about um, what it means for Jesus to be Christ. The, the couple of weeks leading up to Easter, today especially, we're going to talk about the name Christ and its significance. We're going to look at today at his life and ministry and next week his death and burial in light of this title. So it's going to be fun. Um, I'm going to read Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 17. That's where we're going to be. And then um, I'm going to read those, and I'm going to pray, and then we'll come back and talk about this together. Now, when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, means son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. Let's pray together. God, we thank you um, for God giving us your word and God, what we believe to be 100% uh, truth from beginning to end. And God, today as we, uh, as we talk about um, not just the New Testament writings about Christ's life and ministry, but God, uh, how he was uh, fulfilling, uh, God, so many things from the Old Testament. God, I pray that you just give us clarity of mind today. Um, God, from, from uh, give us clarity to those in the room, God, who, who don't have a whole lot of working knowledge of the Bible. Um, and God, those who have a whole lot, God, I pray that you give clarity to all of us. Um, and God, that we would all understand the importance and the heaviness of Jesus as the Christ. Uh, Father, I pray that today you would teach us to know you and that you would be with us. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Um, so titles, we're talking about titles. Titles play an important role in our culture today. 
Uh, I was taught as a kid to say sir and ma'am. I learned in eighth grade that calling one of your teachers by their first name is not a good idea. Um, Mr. South or Coach South would have been better than John, um, and I got two licks to prove it. That's a term for paddling, in case you didn't know. Um, No matter how laid back your teacher may be, don't call him by his first name. Um, I also learned in college that if your professor has a doctorate, you should probably call him doctor just to be safe. They may not care, but it's always a safe thing to do. Uh, But titles, they're, they're part of our lives. Uh, we can even have multiple titles. There are four boys in this world that call me uncle. There are two kids in this world who call me dad. And there's one awesome woman that calls me big sexy. (laughs) And it went over so well in the first service, but you weren't in here, babe. Oh, it's so much better in the second service. Yes. Yes. Oh, all right. All right. All right. Actually, she just calls me Heath. All right. Um, but titles are woven into our culture. Titles are woven into every part of our culture. Um, and we don't even realize it sometimes. And what we're seeing here in Peter's response to this question is a very important title being given to Jesus. And y'all know I like to go into the nerdy stuff. So, so we're going to go down into some nerdy stuff for a minute, okay? But it's really important for us to understand. Okay, so the word that Peter uses when he says you are the, uh, the Christ, that was what it said in English, it's the Greek word Christos in the original language of the New Testament. This title appears in 26 of the 27 books of the New Testament. I think it's important. That can't be said of many other words that all, almost all, 26 out of the 27 New Testament books include this word. Probably none of us in the room are fluent in ancient Greek. I'm not. So the Bible has been translated for us. Praise Jesus. That's where you should say amen. We get to read English, okay? But what the pro- there's a process called translation, right? It's similar to a Spanish class or a German class, or maybe if you took one in high school or something. Right? You've got to translate something from one language to another. The process of translation is taking words, phrases, and sentences and doing your best to retell that in a new language. Okay? That's what translation is. However, there are some times, especially in the Bible, that there's no good way to translate a word or phrase. There isn't a parallel in the new language. In these situations, Bible translators oftentimes transliterate. They don't translate. They transliterate that word into another language. That means they try to spell the Greek word or the Hebrew word, whether they're looking at that, with letters from the new language. That's what we see going on with the word Christos. It's a Greek word spelled with letters that look like symbols to us. And they took that and they're spelling it with English letters, Anglicanizing the word Christos to create this new word, Christ. And you can look up, there's, there's a bigger story behind the transliteration of the word Christ. But for today, that's all I could get my head wrapped around. Now, the problem with the transliteration is it still doesn't help us. So there's this word Christos that you and I don't know because we don't know Greek. The trans- translators go, ah, huh, there's not really an English word that fits it. So let's just create one, Christ. And then they put Christ in the Bible. Well, guess what? If you're coming to the Bible for the first time, you still don't know what it means. 
They didn't translate it into a, into a word that you, knew, you know. And that's oftentimes that they didn't put it in our terms. So we've got to keep asking questions to understand what the word Christ means. In the first century, when the New Testament books were being written, which is the second part of your Bible, if you're familiar with how the Bible is put together, from Matthew on to Revelation, this is the New Testament. But most Christians during the first century, when those books were being written, were reading the Old Testament, not in Hebrew that it was originally written in, but actually in Greek. They were reading in Greek, which was the common language of the day. And guess what? The word Christos is already in the Old Testament. What that means is that Jesus and his followers didn't create this word and go, what's a cool word we could talk about Jesus? How about Christos? That's got a cool sound to it. Yeah, that's what we'll call him. But they didn't invent this word. It already existed. And it's the Hebrew where it gets translated from Hebrew into Greek. It's the word Mashiach. And that's a terrible word. If you don't know about Hebrew, you have to spit a lot. It's like Mashiach. There's a at the end of it, and I'm not very good at it, and Lynn doesn't want to wipe spit off of her face. So there you go. But this is the word, Mashiach, and it appears about 60 times in the Old Testament. It's usually translated as anointed one or anointed ones. It's, the word, it's a word that means one who has been set apart for a task. Um, the image that you can have come to mind is when uh, when... Uh, Samuel goes to anoint David's head as the new king. He anoints his head as this uh, this anointed one who's going to become the king. This is the, the Hebrew word that we would say Messiah. Okay? And so what's interesting is that when we read, I didn't read from the CSB earlier. I read from the ESV uh, translation of the Bible because it uses the word Christ. CSB sometimes uses Messiah, sometimes uses Christ, which is super interesting to me. Uh, y'all know I like nerdy stuff like that. I don't know why, right yet, why they choose to use those. Give me a couple of weeks. But I want you to read this. This is what the CSB says. Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. The translation, the CSB that I use, does that 52 times in the New Testament and leaves 472 times actually using the word Christ. What I don't, again, I don't know why they chose those specific instances to say Messiah, but what I do know is that the word Messiah is loaded with meaning. Loaded with meaning from the Old Testament. Uh, I grew up eating fruit snacks. Not gummies. Do y'all know the difference between gummies and fruit snacks? Okay, some of y'all do, and some of y'all need a lesson. It's hard for me to do it without showing you examples. But there's a texture difference. Gummies, gummies are going to have a squishiness. They're going to have a gummy bear, that kind of thing. Fruit snacks are not. They're just melting. I don't know. Anyway, but there was a type of fruit snack that became popular when I was a kid called Gushers. Remember Gushers? They weren't gummies. They were fruit snacks that were jam-packed of some sort of jelly, probably terrible substance, right? But we loved them. And for some reason, it's not in my notes. That's the best thing I could imagine thinking of how the word Messiah is filled. (laughs) I don't know. Anyway, (laughs) but it's loaded. It's filled up like a gusher, I guess. Um, But this word Messiah, when, when, when we see it, to call Jesus, as Peter did, the Messiah, he's not just making like a statement that's like, oh, that's a cool name. That word Messiah is filled throughout the Old Testament as God makes these huge promises to his people. Some of them seem so much larger than the here and now. When when God speaks through Isaiah and Jeremiah, he makes these big promises. And the people that are hearing it are going, 
dude, that seems so crazy. And could that even happen today? And the point when we read through those, we realize, no, many of those prophecies were not going to be something fulfilled today. They weren't going to be fulfilled until years and years later. Some of them not even yet fulfilled today, possibly. And so all of these, so all these future fulfillment things, or many of them at least, They center around God restoring creation to the way it was before sin wrecked it. It, They tell of of putting an end to sin, to death, and to evil as a whole. And in many of those, that idea of God bringing a restoration of creation gets coupled with the idea of a coming anointed one. It's this anointed one, this Messiah, this Christ, who's actually going to help bring in that restoration. And so by the time, by the first century, guys, when Jesus comes on the scene, all of these prophets from the Old Testament have spoken and the heaviness of what this Messiah would accomplish has gotten greater and greater. Picture the term Messiah just here and then picture just hundreds and hundreds of prophecies being wrapped around that one idea. So much so that when Jesus comes on the scene for Peter to say he's the Christ, people in that world would go, what? There's no way the carpenter's son from the Podunk area of Galilee or of, uh, where in the world, uh, where's he from? He was born in Bethlehem. Yeah, from Galilee. There we go. The born in Bethlehem carpenter's son from Galilee. There's no way he could accomplish all that God's word says the Messiah is supposed to be. That's why Jesus' question to his disciples is so telling. And so what we didn't read, because I'm going to read all 17 verses to you, is before, at the very beginning of Matthew 16, we see an interaction between two groups of people who do not believe that Jesus is anything good. A couple groups that they don't believe he's the Christ, they actually believe him. We're finally to point number one. What an introduction. Wow. They actually believe that Jesus was a foe of the prophet's teaching. The two groups I'm talking about are the Pharisees and the Sadducees. These are two theological camps within the Jewish religion at this time. Jesus had several run-ins with them. Um, Several being a super understated word because it was a bunch. Because they believed he was a legit enemy who was dead set on destroying the entire religious system that they had worked hard to build. I'll read to you just the first verse. I won't read all six verses to you, um, but I want to kind of summarize some things. Uh, the Pharisees and Sadducees approached uh, and tested Jesus, which is just never, it's never starting off well. They asked him to show them a sign from heaven. And just to sum up the rest of it, Jesus said, you can't handle a sign. Quit asking for st- dumb stuff. Don't ask me for a sign. And then he ends as he, he, he after the, they leave, they leave him in verse four. And Jesus talks to his disciples and he says in verse six, watch out. And beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Jesus is saying, be careful when these guys are around, be careful with what they say. Be careful what you listen to because they can, they can mess up everything that we're working towards. These Pharisees and Sadducees hated the life and ministry of Jesus. These would be the same ones who would later seek his death. They had read the scrolls of the Old Testament. They knew the story that a Messiah would come. He was going to be a son of Abraham. We see that in the Old Testament the coming anointed one who's going to be a son of Abraham. What that meant is that he was going to be Israelite to the core. He was going to be one who loves his countrymen more than anything else. He had the Israelite hat 
He had the flag. He had the bumper sticker. He had it all. He loved his country. He was also going to be a son of David. means he was a king-like man who was going to restore the kingdom by overthrowing the Roman government and its emperor. And when Jesus didn't look like that, when he came as just a normal dude, that was all the proof they needed. But if they had known the scriptures, they would have known that the Messiah was not going to be a cookie-cutter Israelite. In fact, Isaiah tells us in Isaiah chapter 8, he says, you're to regard the Lord of armies only. Well, let me butcher that. You are to regard only the Lord of armies as holy. Only he should be feared. Only he should be held in awe. And he will be a sanctuary. But for the two houses of Israel, he will be a stone to stumble over and a rock to trip over and a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. What Isaiah was saying is that there is, there is a Messiah coming and he's going to, he's going to ruffle some feathers. He's going to cause some people to stumble. And when you read through the gospel accounts, what do we find? We find that the Pharisees and the Sadducees were falling all over the place. They were tripping over this rock, this, this stone, this Messiah. And so they hated him for it. But even in their hate, they were simply confirming more prophecy because Isaiah also wrote in 53.3 about the coming Messiah. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. As Isaiah writes about this suffering servant, he says that the anointed one who will come to redeem will also be hated. What better words to describe the cross of Christ? which we'll talk about next week. So the Pharisees and Sadducees, they're they're viewing Jesus as a foe to the prophet's teaching. That's why they wanted him put to death. They, They viewed him as someone who was speaking out against what they had built. It was their opinion. But Jesus' disciples help him see that not everybody believed that. So that's good. When Jesus asked his disciples, who do, who do people say that I am? This is... This is how I would put it in my own words. Uh, point number two, if you're taking notes. Uh, the disciples said that some people are saying that you're a furtherance of the prophet's teaching. So Matthew six fourteen, after Jesus says, who do people say that I am? He says, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Now, many of those who had been around Jesus during his earthly ministry equated his life with, they, with what they assumed the life of the prophets looked like. They viewed him as a simply another version of a prophet. If you're not familiar with how the prophets work, first off, our foundation group that meets on Wednesday nights just finished up going through the Old Testament, um, and it was incredible. Um, they, they're, they're learning so much in that group. If you've never been through our foundations courses, we have three of them. It takes you a year to go through. Man, you need to because they help you see the Bible in the way that we believe here at East. You're supposed to read it as one story from beginning to end. And so uh, they just finished up the Old Testament. But hey, don't panic. The New Testament starts Wednesday night. So you can come and be a part of foundation groups. Just come to the sanctuary. Tell us where you're looking for, and we'll get you hooked up with them. Uh, we also have three life groups, which are start studying sermon-based uh, material. Uh, Kenny will talk about that at the end, too. But if you want to be a part of the foundation group, you can sign up and let us know you're coming by going to groups.lindsaylandese.org. There you go. That's a com- commercial there. 
But if you're unfamiliar, they did just go through this. But the prophets were these people who, who God uh, called up to, to a particular time. They were kind of anointed ones. They were people who were called to a particular task. And their task was to step into the life of usually the Israelites and say, stop doing what you're doing and turn back to God. And you see those uh, beginning with the book of Isaiah. You see all of these these prophets who ride all the way up through the, the minor prophets that we just preached through back in February. These prophets who are, who are calling on Israel to, to, to stop on the path you're on, turn back to God. And most of them also have that forward-looking piece towards the Messiah. The last one, we believe one of the, one of the last or the last prophet to speak was Malachi around 435 B.C., and from that point to Jesus' time on the earth, there was nothing. There were good teachers. There were people who were, who were teaching in the synagogues. And there were people who were, who were opening up the scrolls and explaining them to people. But there was no one who was speaking on behalf of God. Because you see, that's what a prophet does. He speaks on behalf of God. So from 435 B.C.-ish, for for over 450 years, there's nothing until a guy named John comes onto the scene. And so we call him John the Baptizer here, just so that there's no confusion. He wasn't a denominational Baptist. John the Baptist is what most people call him, but we call him John the Baptizer. And so John, that's what he was known for, for the way that he baptized. And John comes on the scene, and people began to listen to him teach, and they began to realize, man, this guy is not just speaking like our scribes. Man, he's, he's speaking like the prophets of old did. There's something special about this guy. John was different from the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He wasn't just telling them what the Old Testament had said. He was, he was speaking with some level of authority. And that's why when, when Jesus says, who do people say that I am? Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. What people were recognizing is that there was something not only different about John, but there was something different about Jesus. That's why in Matthew 7, if you, you don't have to flip there, but Matthew 7, 28 and 29, Jesus had finished speaking. The crowds were astonished at his teaching because he was teaching them like one who had authority, not like their scribes. Jesus was standing out among the crowds of rabbis that were teaching. He stood out because he taught with authority. The Messiah who was prophesied, would definitely have stood out among the crowds just as Jesus did with his teaching. And here they're comparing Jesus to the greats. They're comparing him to Jeremiah and Elijah. And they're also comparing him to the young up-and-comer, the guy in the minor leagues, John the Baptist. They believe that this, a lot of people believe that Jesus, he's going to be another great one. He's going to be another great teacher, another great prophet. But what they were missing was that he was not a great prophet. He was the great one that all the prophets were pointing towards. He was the one Messiah sitting in the midst of all of those prophecies. And it's Peter who gets it right. And if you're reading the biblical story from beginning to end, which you should, you should go, Peter got it right. Like, old oh, jump to conclusions, loud mouth, put my foot in my mouth, Peter. That's the guy who got it right? Peter's asked this hard question by Jesus. The whole group was asked. But Peter responds honestly and probably really quickly, if we know Peter well. 
Because Peter doesn't say that, Jesus, I think you're a foe to the prophet's teaching. I don't think that he didn't say you're just a furtherance of the prophet's teaching. Guys, this is what Peter said. You're a fulfillment of the prophet's teaching. When Jesus asked him in verse 15, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, here's what we got to know about Peter, though. What we find out here in a minute is that Peter had no idea what that meant. <laughs> but Peter, Peter goes on. Um, what Peter proves to, G, to us as the readers is that Peter thought just like the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He had the traditional model of what, what, a, what, a pro, what the uh, Messiah was going to do. In verses 21 through 23, uh, from then on, it says, Jesus began to point out to his disciples that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, scribes, and be killed on the third and be raised on the third day. Peter took him aside. Can you imagine that? Like Jesus is teaching and Peter goes, hey, whoa, 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 Jesus, sorry to interrupt, man. Can we have a word? Like that doesn't happen on a Sunday morning. Y'all don't do that with me. <laughs> Because it would be weird. Peter does it with Jesus. Hey, shh, excuse me. Come here for a second. And then what's the next word? He says, Peter pulled him aside and began to rebuke him. Good night. That's a strong word. What does Peter say? Oh, no, Lord, you will never be killed. You'll, you, you won't go through that. What was, G, what was Peter saying? Peter said, look, dude, if you die, who kills the emperor? Who's sitting on the throne, man? We need you, Jesus. This can't be God's plan. Remember, you're the Messiah that's sitting in the midst of all this prophecy. You're the one that's bringing restoration. You're the one who's supposed to bring this back. You're the one who shuts the government down, and we take over, and we fly our Israelite flags again, and my bumper sticker makes sense now. All of this is supposed to happen. What does Jesus say to him? Get behind me, Satan. Which is the word accuser. Get behind me, accuser. You are a hindrance to me because you're not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. Peter gets upset at the idea of Jesus' death because he knew it would ruin everything that he thought the Messiah had come to do. But I want to show you today, just to wrap, to put a bow on things, is that Peter's response Though Jesus rebukes him for the afterthought, Jesus does not rebuke him for the original thought. The original thought was good. And what it was, Peter's first response, that you are the Christ, it was a declaration of revelation. Because this is what happens. After, Jesus, after Peter says, you're the Messiah, the Son of the living God, Jesus says this in verse 17. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. That's Jesus' way of saying, dude, we hadn't reached that part of the curriculum yet. We hadn't got there yet. We were talking this week, and I don't, and my kids are in public schools, and so I, uh, I don't know what they learn um, all the time, right? Like, because I'm, I'm not a good teacher when it comes to all those things. Uh, I didn't learn, uh, anyway, I struggle to even remember history and algebra and all those things. But my, so my, my kid, Daniel's home the other day, and we're talking about, we're talking about words. Um, he's writing words on the thing. He's, he's learning to read. He's in kindergarten. And he starts talking about prepositions. 
Okay, I don't know about y'all, but I was not expecting prepositions in kindergarten. I don't think I learned prepositions until I was like in 10th grade at Ardmore. Like, I'm <laughs> probably about that late. But like, I can remember thinking, prepositions? Like, what's a preposition? He said, and he starts spitting some of them out. I'm like, okay, all right. Like, I didn't think that was in the curriculum yet. Like, I don't know, I don't know. Analogy, right? <laughs> That's what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is saying, Peter, you're pulling out stuff, man, that we ain't got to yet. I haven't yet told you that I'm the Messiah. Where'd you get that from? I know. God revealed it to you. God, in your spirit, the Father from heaven, spoke into the spirit of Peter as he watched Jesus. This isn't, he didn't just meet Jesus. He'd been watching Jesus. And in his spirit, the holy living God has spoken to the heart of Peter and said, that's the Messiah that you've been waiting for. It was a declaration of revelation. It had been revealed to him. When I was seven years old, God made the gospel come alive in my heart. And I know what you're thinking. Seven? It's pretty young, Heath. I know. And just a whole lot like Peter, I didn't know much. (laughs) I'll be honest with you. I didn't have all the answers. I'm... How old am I? 35? I think I'm 35. I'm 35, and I don't have all the answers. I know y'all think, Heath, you're a pastor. You have all the answers. No, I don't. I don't. Text me a question later. Probably won't have it. I'm still learning just like you guys are. And especially when I was seven, I didn't have all the answers. But what I had was that I knew Jesus had done something for me that nobody else could. Not my mom, not my dad, not my grandparents, not my great-grandparents. Not my wife that was soon to be coming down the road. Christ had done something for me in his death, burial, and resurrection that no one else could do for me. And I knew that and that was it. Church, it was enough. When Peter answered that question that day, he didn't have all the answers. In fact, he had everything else messed up. He simply believed it to be true, though. And man, I can relate to that, and I hope you can. But what happens is that over time, Peter's declarate, this declaration of faith that he made, this declaration that was rooted in revelation from God, grew. It was not that it needed to grow, but Peter began to not only, he wasn't just depending on something that, that, uh, that he hadn't seen, he was actually beginning to realize that he, he could trust Christ because of things that he had seen. I want to call this a declaration of observation is what it grew to. Listen to how Peter speaks years down the road about Jesus. Second Peter 1, 16, starting there. For we, he, Peter's talking about the apostles here who walked with Jesus, those early disciples. For we did not follow cleverly contrived myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Instead, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For Christ received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice when it came from heaven while we were with him on the holy mountain. We also have the prophetic word strongly confirmed and you do well to pay attention to it. As to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. Listen to the heart of this man. 
He says, I believe Jesus is the Messiah, not because of what has been secretly revealed to me in my spirit by God, but what I have seen and experienced for myself. Peter, by this point, by the time he writes this letter that we call Second Peter, he's seen diseased people be completely healed. He's seen blind people begin to see, lame, begin to jump and run and act crazy in the temple. He's seen the sick get well, the deaf begin to hear, demons driven out of people. He's heard, by this point, he's heard the, the incredible teaching, the miraculous, overwhelmingly authoritative teaching of Christ. He saw what he's speaking of here is this moment called the transfiguration. And like, I don't even know how to tell you about it because even the authors don't even know. Like Jesus invited three of them up the mountain. And when they got up there, the father in heaven began to speak and interact with God, the son in a way that they just went. I don't know what to say. And they were left speechless. And he's, he's, he's witnessed that. And he's also been a witness of the resurrection. For me, it's seven years old. I had a declaration of revelation. I was trusting in Christ to be faithful as what I had read in the Bible that he would be. Listen to me. I was believing that God would be with me in my darkest days through the Holy Spirit in me. But now, I can not only say that my faith is a declaration of revelation, it's also a declaration of observation. I have seen Christ be faithful. I've watched him give strength to the hurting. I've seen him lift up the downcast. I've seen him be with those who are in major needs. I've witnessed it myself. I've witnessed it through a text message that I got right before I came in here. Of a young man who's 30 years old and just lost his grandmother this morning. But because of the ministry of this church and the work of the Spirit in him, He's now not trusting in his, his grandmother's safety because of what he heard. He's, he's seen the work of God through this church, and he now has a hope that he actually has memories to tie it to. You see, I have witnessed the work of God myself. And my faith that once began as a simple declaration of revelation, has now grown. And I am confident that this Jesus that I have trusted in, and I do have faith in what God's Word says about Him, we cannot separate God's Word. It is truth. But I've also seen the work of Jesus, who was killed 200, or 200 years ago. That math's bad. The G, this Jesus who was killed 2,000 years ago. I've seen His work today, church. He must be risen. He must be alive to work in the way that he does, to lead me in the way that he does, to be with me as he does. You see, Jesus is not a foe of the prophetic teaching of the Old Testament. He's not just a furtherance. He wasn't just a good teacher. He is the fulfillment of everything those teachers spoke on behalf of God. He's the fulfillment. Church, I've got to ask you a question. Do you believe in this, this Christ? Like, do you, in the depths of your heart, do you believe that Jesus really was who he said he was and he really accomplished the things that you've, you read about? Do you know Jesus as the one whom God had planned from the beginning to redeem all of mankind? He's the Savior who is the Christ, the Messiah. 
And listen, if you're in the room today and you've not yet believed in him, I don't know what you were told you needed to believe in, but you've got to believe that Jesus is the Christ, not just the one that died for you, but the one who died for all. Today, you can trust in him. If you've not yet believed, we would love to help you begin this relationship with Christ today. The Bible makes it clear we need to repent of our sins and we need to trust in Jesus to save us. We would love to talk with you about that. We're going to have a song here in a minute that's going to help us do that. But for those of us that are believers, if you're in the room, you're like, Keith, I got it, man. He's the Christ. I'm with you. No, you probably don't. I'm not calling into question your salvation. I'm simply calling into question the heaviness with which this word that was on the screen when we first started has in our hearts. We call Jesus the Christ, but I hope what you've seen today is that Jesus' importance in the word Christ outdates your first sin. You realize that, right? Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, it outdates. I don't know how old I was when I sinned. First, I was born in 87, so I'm assuming it was about 87. It's probably about the time I started sinning. And I was born in January, so I had a long time in 87 to figure out sin. But Jesus as the Christ, the importance, the heaviness of that goes way back, long past 87. There's a whole list of statements in the Old Testament that are pointing forward to this Messiah. Jesus is not the only, is not the one you've been waiting on. He's the one that the Israelites of the Old Testament have been waiting on. Church, he's the one that the whole creation has been waiting on. The trees that have been around longer than me and you, they're waiting on restoration. The rocks, the water, the world, the creation, the planets are waiting on restoration. And Jesus is the Messiah who is bringing that restoration. It's heavy. It's heavy. The heaviness of Jesus' life and ministry, I believe we need to acknowledge this this Easter. And God has been just, just, just wearing me out this week and helping me understand. He called Jesus the Christ all the time, but do you, think, do you often think about how heavy it is? So whether you're not a Christian today and you want to you want to uh, you want to talk to us about becoming one, we'll learn what it looks like to follow Jesus. Or whether you're a Christian in the room and and you just you just need to to sit in this heaviness for a moment, we're gonna have a song to sing. So um, typically I stand up front and I stare at you. We're gonna do something different. I'm gonna go to the back this time. I'll stare at the back of your heads instead of your faces. Okay, um, I'm gonna be back there right next right down this aisle. If you need to come talk to me about anything, but especially about salvation, I'm going to be back there. We're going to have decision counselors by the back door, just like always. But just come talk to me. I just want to hear your heart, see what God's saying to you. I'll be back there. Um, if you need to come and pray at this altar uh, or pray right where you are. Like I know the first service, we had a lot of people that just sat in the heaviness of Jesus as the Christ. And they just spent time in prayer during this last song. You can do that. Some of you are going to, for the first time, go with us at 2.30 today and you're scared to death to go knock on a door and invite somebody to church because you've never done it. I know what you're going to be praying about and I don't even have to challenge you with it. You're going to be praying that God would give you strength today. Do that. Whatever God's laid on your heart to pray about or to, to worship Him for, uh, we want to have an opportunity to do that. So um, I'm going to be at the back again. If you need me for anything, I'm going to say a word of prayer and after I say amen, we'll stand. And we'll respond however God leads us to. Father, we thank you, God, that uh, that Jesus didn't just die for Heath Haney. Uh, God, he didn't just die for those who call Lindsay Lane East home. But um, but you had this you had this global mission in mind from the very beginning. 
this global mission, this this uh, universe uh, idea of restoring everything to the way it was before our sin wrecked it, putting an end to all evil, to death, to sin. And we know that you sent Jesus as a major part of that restoration. And God, one day you'll send him again and, and finally and fully bring that restoration that we just get tiny taste of today, like text messages that we get today of being able to celebrate the death of a loved one. God, that comes from a partial restoration that comes in Christ. The fact that we can celebrate such a terrible thing. But God, we know there's a full restoration coming. God, we look forward to that day. God, do it tomorrow if you want. We welcome it. But God, as for today, God, help us to, to trust Christ with everything that we have. God, to recognize that Jesus is the Christ. The one spoken of in Genesis 3, God, all the way to Genesis 12 and, and 15 and God, to Moses on Mount Sinai and the one you teased about to David in 2 Samuel and through all the prophets, he's the one. God, let us sit in that heaviness today. We thank you for the opportunity to worship you, God. Help us respond in the way that we should. In Jesus' name, amen. Guys, let's stand. You can respond however you need to.